series on the parables, and today is the last one. Um, but today what I want to do is I kind of want to take a little bit different angle. We're going to be looking briefly at the parable of the Good Samaritan. But before we do that, I want to do something a little bit different. I want everyone to stand up. So wherever, wherever you are in the sanctuary, go ahead and stand up. I know you just sat down and got comfortable. I apologize. And once everybody's standing up, I want you to close your eyes. Don't worry, nothing funny is going to happen. Close your eyes, and I want you to point with your right hand whatever direction you think north is. So with your eyes closed, point north. Okay, most of us were there. Okay, now open your eyes. Okay, you guys are pretty good. That's not bad. That's not, Okay, some of you are going this way. I don't know. But north is actually this way. So, I, yeah, I'm sorry. I think this side of the sanctuary wins. Um, everybody, go ahead and take a seat. Okay, well, uh, the only reason I know that is because I have a compass app on my uh, iPhone. Um, but, but some of us in the sanctuary, I think, are directionally challenged, uh, like me. You know, we, we get lost on the freeways. Sometimes we're going the wrong direction or, you know, we're, we're going the wrong way on side streets uh, and, and that kind of a thing. And we have a difficulty finding our true north, finding our true north, kind of getting our bearings. And I think it's similar in our spiritual life as well, isn't it? Uh, sometimes we, we have a hard time finding our bearings in our spiritual life, knowing kind of what's the point of our life with God. What does God want from us after we believe? What's our spiritual true north? Uh, a few weeks ago, I was up at the Navajo Reservation, and uh, it's, it's great up there because there's no light pollution. You could see the sky really well. And there was one night when I was standing outside, I was standing there with Barbara Curry, and we were looking up at the constellations in the sky, and she was pointing out different constellations. And at one point, she pointed to the North Star, and she said, if you could find the North Star, it makes the rest of this easy. See, because the North Star is constant. It doesn't move, right? So it, it gives you a reference point. It gives you a point in the sky that you could look at, and then you could look at the rest of the sky around that. And I think this morning what we want to look at is what is the reference point in our spiritual life? What is the true north in our relationship with God? After we believe, after we say the sinner's prayer, what are we supposed to kind of zero in on and focus in on? What gives us our sense of direction? There's lots of different answers to this. Some people think uh, our true north, uh, our, our focus point in the spiritual life is just to kind of become, uh, you know, theological gluttons and kind of take in as much information as possible. You know, so the goal of spiritual life is just to learn as much as we can. Some people say that. Other people say we need to become the morality police for our community. We need to wag our finger anytime people are doing bad things. You know, maybe that's the direction of our spiritual life. Or for other people, it's church attendance. You know, if, if I come to every single church function at Hope Covenant Church, you know, I got my boxes crossed and I'm on my way. What is the key to our life with God? That's the question we want to ask this morning. And interestingly, that's a question that a lot of people ask in Jesus' day as well. And there's several accounts in the Gospels where people are asking Jesus, what is the true north in our spiritual lives? And thankfully for us, Jesus gives us an answer. So one of the places that we find this is in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. If you have your Bibles... I would invite you to turn there now. Uh, the text is also going to be on the screen, and it's in your sermon bulletins as well. Mark 12, uh, 28. In this section of Mark, uh, there's religious teachers, and they're coming up to Jesus, and they're asking him all kinds of questions, right? They're asking him about taxes. They're asking him about the resurrection. And finally, a teacher comes up to Jesus and kind of gets right to the heart of the matter. And here's what he says. One of the religious teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he said to that him, 
of all the commandments, what, which one is the most important? Which is the greatest? Right? So out of all the 613 commandments in the Old Testament, which one is number one? You know, and I, I love this question because I think as humans, all of us kind of have this innate desire to ask these kinds of questions, to ask what I call mega questions. You know, who's the greatest uh, basketball player who ever lived? You know, is it Michael Jordan, Larry Bird? It's probably Kobe Bryant, in case you're curious. But, you know, who's the greatest basketball player? Uh, was that some booze? Uh, I'm not in L.A. anymore. I'm sorry. Um, but... But, you know, we ask, who's the greatest baseball player? Is it Babe Ruth? Is it one of the steroid boys? You know, who qualifies as the greatest baseball player or football player? You know, that's one of the reasons a lot of us like to watch the Olympics, right? We want to know who the fastest man alive is. Today, uh, Bolt is going to race, you know, and we're going to see if he's the quickest man. And, you know, we've seen time and time again that Michael Phelps is the greatest Olympian. He has the most gold medals. He has the most overall medals. And, and that's one of the reasons we watch the Olympics. It's one of the reasons... Um, that we like to see these things is because we like to ask what I call mega questions. The Guinness Book of World Records is the best-selling copyrighted book of all time. And it's also why we find Forbes magazine every year gives us a list of the richest people in the world. We like mega questions, and so does this religious teacher. And so he's asking Jesus what the greatest commandment is. What is our spiritual north? And in response, this man actually gets more than he bargains for. You see, what Jesus does in response to this question is he fuses together two commandments from the Old Testament into one. The first commandment that he quotes is known as the Shema. And the Shema was really the kind of the greatest uh, passage for Jews in the entire Old Testament. It was the closest thing they had to a creed. Here's what the Shema says. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So this is the Shema. Every single pious Jew recited this twice a day. Once in the morning when they woke up and then once in the evening before they went to bed to remind themselves of what God had called them to do. The second passage that Jesus quotes is from Leviticus 19.18, and it talks about neighborly love. Here's what it says. Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people. And here's the important part. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. So what Jesus is doing here is he's taking the Shema, he's taking the central creed in Judaism, and he's changing it, and he's transforming it, and he's turning it into something new. He's turning it into what I call the Jesus Creed. And here's how the Jesus Creed goes. The most important commandment, this is Jesus talking, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And friends, this is it. This is our true north. This is the most important thing for the lives of Christians. This is the thing that God wants us to focus on. This is the Jesus Creed. And it can be summed up in four simple words. Love God and love others. What's our spiritual north? What does God want us to focus on? Love God and love others. It's very, very simple. God really, Jesus boils it down to these this, this twofold love commandment of loving God and loving others. And what I want us to do to kind of help visualize that this morning is to look at this cross. So you're all familiar with this cross. And at the center of the cross, according to Jesus, we have love. All right. You have to... All right. So this is love. 
And this is the red hot core of the Christian life, according to Jesus. Uh, the word used in the Jesus Creed is agapao, and that has the idea of prizing or making much of or treasuring another person. You see, for God, love is to be the heart of the Christian life. Love is to be at the center of what it means to be a Christian. But that love is to be directed in two different directions. It's to go two different ways. First, we have what's called uh, love for God. So this is what we call vertical love. And it's directed up. So that's vertical love. Okay. For God. So that's the first commandment. First and foremost, above anything else, God wants you and me to be people who love God with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. But then secondly, out of that flows this other commandment. And this other commandment is to love other people. This other commandment is to love our neighbor as ourself. In the New Testament, over a dozen times we find commands where we are told to love one another. The example of Jesus Christ, the example of other people throughout the New Testament has this idea that they're constantly committed to loving other people. And so, again, what we find in the Jesus Creed is this command, first, a vertical love. Second, what I call horizontal love. So we have vertical love and horizontal love, and they're all flowing out of a heart for God and one another. And they're really inseparable. You kind of need um, both of them. You can't love God without loving one another, can you? Because then your love's just a shame, because then all you have is a list of do's and don'ts. But you also can't love others without loving God, because then you're disconnected from the source of love, which is God. So they're inseparable. You need both of them. And the big idea here is that in the Christian life, God is in the business of making you and me into lovers, into lovers. He's into the business of making you and me into lovers of God and to one another. And so I want to spend the rest of our time talking about this double love command of what we call vertical love and horizontal love. How can we love God and how can we love others fully and rightly? I want to kind of fill out some of these concepts for us. So first, let's think about this idea of vertical love. First, how does God want us to love him? Um, I remember a few years ago, I was up in Chicago, and I was at a conference where Gary Chapman was speaking. He was talking about uh, the five love languages. And many of you have probably read that book before, but basically he talks about how to give and receive love. And I remember sitting there at the end of the talk thinking to myself, how does God want to receive love? You know, what's, what's God's love language, right? And I think the, the Jesus Creed kind of helps us out in this area a little bit. Um, one of the things it says is that we are to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And that's a lot of alls. But the point is that Jesus wants our undivided love. He doesn't just want part of our love. Part of the temptation in the Christian life is to kind of compartmentalize our lives, is to keep God away from certain areas of our life. But the challenge of the Jesus Creed is that we would love God with all that we are. First, that we would love him with all of our heart. Christianity is not simply about doing the right thing. It's not simply about just obeying God out of a sense of duty, but instead it has this idea of being an intimate relationship between us and God. God wants our emotions and affections to be engaged. To love God with all of our heart means to love God with our emotions and our affections. Sorry, guys, but you have to be emotional. 
Um, think, think about it like this. Let's say tomorrow is my uh, seven-year anniversary with Kelly, my wife. It's not, but let's say it is. And I get off from work, and I leave the office, and I go to downtown Chandler, and I pick up some flowers. And I get those flowers, and I come home, and Kelly swings open the door, and she's blushing, and she looks at me, and she's really happy and giddy, and she says, why did you go through all the trouble to get me flowers? And I look at her, and I say, well, because it's my duty. You know, because, because this is what husbands do on anniversaries, because my dad taught me that there's a proper way of doing things. That's why I got you the flowers. How would Kelly respond if I said that? I mean, she would be heartbroken, wouldn't she? You know, I would be sleeping on our rock driveway that night. I mean, it, would not, it wouldn't be a good sight at all because Kelly doesn't just want me to do the right thing. She wants me to do it out of the right motives. She wants me to be happy to make her happy. And I think it's very similar with God as well. He doesn't just want our brute obedience. He doesn't want you and I just to do the right thing, but he wants us to do it out of this uncontrollable drive, out of this overflow of emotions and feelings that we have for God. And I know what some of you are thinking. Sometimes we don't have emotions for God, right? Sometimes they dry up, and this is true. Our emotions for God do wane. They do kind of go up and down. But my point is, whether it's with your spouse or with your Heavenly Father, the goal, our aim, should always be the same. Our aim should always be for our emotions to come back, for our emotions to be engaged, because that's when we're loving God with all of our heart. Second, Jesus tells us that we're to love God with all of our soul. This refers to our identity and our self. This is kind of like the core of our being. It's what defines us. Um, and it's, it's really kind of built up by the choices that we make. So when we make um, good choices, when we make godly, Christ-honoring choices, it creates this pattern in our life, a lifestyle, where we are loving God with all of our soul. Of course, the problem is sometimes we don't make good choices. I remember hearing this story um, about an old pastor and a young pastor talking to one another. And the young pastor asked the old pastor, how do I become a good pastor? And the old pastor said, by making good decisions. And so the young pastor thought about it for a second. And he said, well, how do I make good decisions? And the old pastor said, experience. And the young pastor said, well, how do I get experience? And the, the old pastor said, by making bad decisions. Right? And it's, you know, it's true. And I, it's, it's the same in the Christian life, I think, as well. You know, the way we grow, the way we mature, the way we learn to love God with all of our soul is by making bad decisions and then learning from them. You know, all of us are going to blow it at times. All of us are going to make mistakes. And you could probably think about one that you made just this last week. But the question you have to ask yourself is, are you going to get discouraged? Are you going to beat yourself up? Are you going to quit? Are you going to grow from those mistakes? Are you going to allow those to become learning opportunities in your life with God? Third, we're to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. This refers to our knowledge and our thoughts. This is a tough one for some Christians because I think some Christians, it's it's funny because they tend to love God either with their mind, their knowledge, or their heart, their emotions, right? So if you're, if you're one of those people who's, you know, very stoic and you like to read books all the time and you don't like to talk about your feelings and you're more cerebral, your temptation is to love God with your mind. But if you're the person who's very, you know, people person, you're bubbly, you don't like to be alone ever, you cry during comedies, you know, if that's you, then you tend to love God with your heart. And what God tells us is our mind and our hearts belong together. We're supposed to love God with both our minds and both our hearts. Um, 
And, and I think kind of how this plays out, for instance, is that we learn things about God. So if you like science or art, if you, if you read the Bible, you learn things about God. They come into your mind, and then they kind of filter down to your heart, and then your emotions kind of well up, and you, and you, and you love God with both your heart and your emotions. And then eventually you're, you're called to action, so you begin to love God with your hands and feet as well. That's kind of the idea. That's how God wants this to work. Think back again with the marriage illustration. When I'm doing premarital counseling, one thing I tell couples a lot is that you need to be a lifelong student of your mate, right? You need to be a lifelong student of your mate. And what that means is you need to continually be asking questions about your spouse's past. Tell me stories about high school. Tell me stories about college. You, know, you want to learn things about them that you don't already know. And then you want to learn about their, their dreams for the future. You know, what do you, where, where do we want to be in five, ten years? You need to continually be studying and learning more and more about your spouse because the more you learn about them, the more you have an opportunity to love them. And I think it's very similar with God. The more we learn about God, the more Christian books we read, the more we dig into the scriptures, the more exposure we have to who God is and what he's done, the more opportunity we have to love him. Finally, we're told to love God with all of our strength. And this refers to our motivation and our will. Another way of saying this is it refers to our energy, to kind of giving our best effort. It's this attitude of reckless abandon where we are ruined for the ordinary. And I love that phrase, ruined for the ordinary, where we have tasted and experienced the presence and life of God. And so we are ruined for the normal kind of nine to five American dream uh, you know, go on vacations, watch TV, never think about spiritual things. This, this kind of self-centered version of life that some people have, we're ruined for that because God has called us to this. This is what it means to love God with all of our motivation, with all of our strength, with all of our will. I remember when I was in high school, I played football, uh, believe it or not, and the, the, the team I played on was actually number one in the nation. We were the best in the whole country. And it was, it was an incredible team. They were, they were really, really good. But one of the reasons why we were so good is because Coach Barnes, um, our coach, would make sure that we loved football with all of our strength. And what I mean by that is we had to give 110%. You know, he would push us in practice, uh, you know, till we kind of hit the wall, till we hit our limit, and then he would push us a little bit further. This is how football teams get good. This is how people, you know, gain muscle mass. This is, this is kind of how things work, and it's the same in our relationship with God. He wants us to kind of move all in, to love him with all that we are. And so when we put this all together, loving God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength, uh, Jesus is kind of painting us a picture of a God-centered life, a life that is consumed with God, that daydreams about him and can't help but praise him. But one of the things that we have to make crystal clear here is that when we're talking about this life, we need supernatural resources to make this happen. You and I can't love each other. We can't love God by ourselves. It's impossible. We'll fail to do that. We need supernatural resources. So please, please, please understand that the premise behind the Jesus Creed is this. Loving God and others is not something we do to get God to love us, it's something we do because we're already loved by God. Do you see the difference there? Do you see that distinction? Here's how, first, here's how it's said in 1 John 4. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we ought to also love one another. 
So what we're talking about this morning, what the Jesus Creed is talking about, is not the gospel, it's our response to the gospel. You see, God takes the first initiative. God takes the first step. God loves us first, and then in response, he calls us as Christians, as men and women who follow Christ, to love God and to love others. And this is really the logic of Christian love, which says God's love for us empowers us to become lovers of God and one another. See, because we've received, like Dwayne talked about last week, all this forgiveness and all this love, we have this secret bank account to draw out of where we can love one another and where we could love God. When God's love gets inside us, we can't help but love one another. Which brings us to our second point, what we're calling horizontal love, right? Horizontal love, which is love for our neighbor as ourself. Um, you know, it's interesting. We, we, we kind of naturally love ourselves, don't we? We, we look out for our best interests. We, we look out for ourselves. We want to be happy. We want a fulfilling life. And in a sense, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's a certain kind of self-love that's okay. It's one that realizes we are created in the image of God, that we are loved by God. And that's okay. But what God tells us is we're to take that self-love and turn it out on the world. To extend the love we have for ourselves onto other people, kind of to be a conduit. So as God pours love into us, we pour it out to one another. But what is neighborly love? Well, I think it is at least three things. First, neighborly love is Christ-like. In Philippians 2, we're told to have the same mind of Christ, which values others and elevates their interest, right? This is part of what it means to love one another. And it's, it's, it's a little bit counterintuitive to put other people's interest above ourselves. But I think when we do, we really become more happy and more satisfied. Um, I remember before I got married, one of my mentors said to me, Brandon, a happy wife is a happy life. You know, have you ever heard that before? And what he was saying was essentially, if you make your wife happy, if you go out of your way to satisfy and please her, you're going to be happy in return. Which, of course, is for everybody that's married in this room, you know that's true. You know the happier your spouse is, the happier you are. And I think the same logic applies to other relationships as well. The happier our children are, obviously, the happier we are. The happier our neighbors are, and even our enemies are, the happier we are. Second, neighborly love is holistic. And what I mean by this is it fulfills the one another passages in Scripture. Scripture gives us dozens and dozens of these passages uh, that are known as the one another passages. They kind of create a framework or an ethic of love. And they're not exhaustive. They don't tell us everything. But kind of like lights, you know, on a, on a runway for, for a plane, they kind of let us know we're going in the right direction. And if you look on the backside of your bulletins, you'll see that I listed all of the one another passages there for you. I want to read those to you. So, so here's, here's the one and other passages in Scripture. It says, Love is devoted, loyal, non-judgmental. It accepts, instructs, waits, has equal concern, serves, does not provoke, carries burdens, forgives, encourages, prays, confesses, sin, is patient, is compassionate, is hospitable, is available, agreeable, does not slander, does not gossip, and does not grumble. A lot, it's a lot of one another's. Um, but the idea here is there's a wideness to our love. It's not just simply being nice to a person. It's, it's all of these other things. Third, neighborly love is God-centered. And this is a really important one. I think one helpful definition of love is that love is doing whatever you can to help others love God more. So love is God-centered. For instance, um, there might be people in our lives that don't really want to hear the gospel, right? They're not very interested in it. 
And the most loving thing for you and me to do is to tell them the gospel. <laughs> I mean, it sounds strange, but obviously we need to do it in a way that's, that's loving, that's bathed in prayer, that's, that's subtle, and, and, and that kind of a thing. But the truth of the matter is there is millions and millions of people dying without the gospel. And it's our job, because we love them, to tell them that, whether they want to hear it or not. So love is God-centered. It's a love that propels people to love God more. It's a love that encourages our fellow Christians to uh, have a stronger relationship with Christ. So neighborly love is Christ-like. It's holistic. It's God-centered. But who is our neighbor? Who does God want you and me to extend this kind of love to? We have a list. I want to go through six different kinds of people we're to extend love to, and we'll go through these real quick. First, uh, neighborly love starts at home, right? Neighborly love starts with our immediate family. It starts with the people we know the most. We see this in Jesus' life. He gets it. He, take, he makes sure his mom is cared for when he's dying. But the truth is, for many of us, it's easier for us to love children in Africa than it is our own spouses, you know? But the truth is, if we can't love our own spouses, then our love in public is a sham because we're not loving the very people that God has called us to love the most. So first, neighborly love starts at home. It starts with our spouses and our children and our parents. Second, neighborly love includes our close friends. We see this with the disciples in the early church. They're constantly sharing their possessions and taking care of one another. They were known for their love for one another. Neighborly love includes our close friends. It also includes our coworkers. And this can be a difficult one because for some of us, our coworkers bug us. You know, they, 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 they just annoy us and maybe they talk to us when we're busy and, uh, and that kind of a thing. And so it's really hard for some of us to love our coworkers, but God calls us to even love them. Fourth, God calls us to love our acquaintances. Again, a hard one for some of us. There might be some people in your spheres of influence, maybe, you know, friends with your kids something like that, and uh, you would never want to have dinner with them. You know, they're, not, you just, they're, not, they're not very lovable people, you know, and we all know people like this. Uh, and, you know, the interesting thing about being in the ministry is you meet these kind of people all the time, you know, because you can't choose your acquaintance in the ministry. You're, you're, you're bumping shoulders with all kinds of different people. And it really changes you in one sense. I remember uh, a few years ago I was on a missions trip to Fiji, and one of the guys on my team was just so arrogant, you know, he, he would just say the silliest jokes, and I was, you know, I was really dreading being on this team with him, but by the end of the four months, I loved him as a brother, and see, something happened between the start and the finish of that, I don't know when, but he just kind of grew on me, and I think sometimes we're so quick to judge, we're so quick to reserve love to acquaintances that we really never give them a chance, we shut down the relationship before it starts. Five, we're called to love strangers. This would include people in the Chandler Mall, in the airport, in the grocery store. It would include waiters and waitresses. I was a waiter for, for 10 years, and I'll tell you, Christians aren't known for their love in the, <laughs> you know, at restaurants. Right? They're known for tipping bad and being a little bit short, you know. And sometimes they stuff a five spiritual laws track, you know, with the $2 tip. And you're like, great, thanks a lot, you know. But, but how do we treat uh, strangers? How do we treat our waiters, you know, are we kind to them? Are we loving to them? Do we want the best for them? Or, you know, are they just kind of a fly on the wall? Finally, our sworn enemies. And I kind of want to camp on this one for just a little bit because Jesus tells this exciting parable in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 about it. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. This is called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here's what it says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. 
Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, your neighbor as yourself. So he's, he's quoting the Jesus creed here. He's familiar with what Jesus says. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, so who is my neighbor? So this guy's kind of trying to stump Jesus, but he asked him a very good question. You see, in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, in the passage that Jesus is quoting, um, neighbor referred to fellow Jews. And so what this lawyer is asking Jesus is, who exactly am I I to extend neighborly love to? Is it just people in my own ethnic background? Is it people in my own socioeconomic class? Who does God want me to extend love to? Does he want me to extend love to the hated Romans? You know, surely not. And here's Jesus' answer. A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going by the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by to the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by to the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey and brought him to an inn to care for him. The next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expenses you may have. Which of these two men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say his name, but he knows who he is. The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The point of this parable is, is very simple. We have uh, a, a, the road to Jericho, which is, was this treacherous, really dangerous road that stretched from Jerusalem to Jericho. And there was always robbers and bandits on it. And there's this man who's beat up and robbed and left half dead. And then coming down the road are two men, two religious leaders. First, we have a priest and then a Levite who is a temple assistant. And when they see this half dead man, they go to the other side of the street and they keep on walking. They have no pity. They have no compassion. They're only thinking about themselves. And then a Samaritan comes. You know, Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Uh, it's kind of like the relationship between Jews and Palestinians today. Uh, Samaritans were thought to be ethnically impure and religiously uh, heretics. And so the Samaritan, this man hated by the Jews, comes up and he sees the wounded Jew laying hafted by the road. And he goes up to him and he takes care of him. He bandages his wounds. He applies the first aid kit. And then he takes them to the local motel to get better. And Jesus' point is very, very simple. It's that everyone is our neighbor, even our sworn enemies. You see, love has no limits, and it destroys all boundaries of love and mercy. Jesus is saying here that there's never a point with love that we can say enough. Now, sure, there's certain circumstances, such in situations of abuse, where we're going to have boundaries in our love. Or maybe we're not going to have contact with certain people because the most loving thing for us to do is to pull out of these people's lives. That's certainly the case. But Jesus is telling us here that there's never a time when we're not supposed to love. We're supposed to love all people at all times. We're supposed to be for everyone. We're supposed to want the best. We're supposed to want God's best, even for our own sworn enemies, even for people who aren't our kind. Um, there's this t-shirt 
that I really love, and I think we have a picture of it. It says, uh, love thy neighbor, thy homeless, Muslim, black, gay, white, Jewish, Christian, atheist, racist, and addicted neighbor. Yeah. And I love that because it kind of gets to all these different categories of some people that maybe slip through the cracks of our lives and say, look, we're supposed to love everyone, even these people. So this is our true north in the Christian life. This is the Jesus creed. This horizontal and vertical love that we've been talking about, I think, is the key to spiritual formation. Because we live in a messy world, we're never going to get this completely right. But our goal and our aim should always be on the bullseye of loving God and loving others. So I want to give us all a challenge this morning. Inside your bulletins, you'll find a bookmark. looks like this. And on the bookmark, um, there's several different things. One, on the front side of this, I, I, I typed out the Jesus Creed for you. So this is a Jesus Creed from uh, Mark 12:28. And, my, and then on the other side is actually a prayer written by a man named Scott McKnight, which is based on the Jesus Creed. And my challenge is very simple. My challenge is once a day for the next week, recite the Jesus Creed to God. Okay? That's it. Just recite the Jesus Creed once a day. You can put this in your Bibles um, and, you know, pull it out when you do your devotions. But, but I think it's really important to remind ourselves of where true north is. And I know some of you might be thinking right now, you know, is Pastor Brandon kind of going Catholic on the, us? You know, what's this idea of reciting and repeating, you know, just what's going on? I'm not giving in to the Catholic Church. I'm giving in to Jesus, right? I'm reminding myself that I leak, and I think we all do. We all forget and when fail, really, to love God and love others. You know, we go after unworthy loves. And I think we learn through repetition. So reminding ourselves of what the most important thing in our spiritual life is, of where our true north is, is something that is very, very important. Um, Over the past few weeks, I've been practicing this. I've been saying the Jesus Creed several times throughout my day, and it's really created this neat rhythm uh, for my spiritual life where I'm constantly challenged to love God and love others more in practical ways. Just because it's on my mind, just because it's on my heart. You know, the idea isn't just to say it out loud as some kind of a duty, right? But the idea is for it to become a delight, like we talked about earlier, for it to go from your mind to your heart to your hands. And I want us to all think about what it would be like if that happened. What if the Jesus Creed really was kind of internalized in all of our hearts? What would that look like? What would it look like if we really grabbed hold of this horizontal and vertical love? If it became the defining characteristic and one of the main themes of Hope Covenant Church? If uh, you went to the nursery and to the Sunday school classes and to the grow groups and they all glowed with this kind of Christ-like love that we're talking about this morning? What if all of us went out of our way to meet people in this room right now that we don't know out of a heart of love? You know, I think amazing things could happen when we give in to this command of love. And, you know, we're doing a really good job, but there's always room for improvement. So I would encourage you to ask yourself how you could extend greater Christ-like, God-centered love to God and one another. I want to close this morning by reading the Jesus Creed over you. And as I read it, I would encourage you to just kind of think to yourself how this kind of ties into your life. You know, who are the people that maybe God is calling you to love? And what are some practical ways that you can love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Hear, O Hope Covenant Church, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that we would learn to love you, Father. Your word tells us that we become like what we adore. We become like what we love, Father. And so we pray that as we love you, we would become more like you, Father. And the only reason we love you is because you first loved us, because you first extended tremendous love to us in the cross of Christ. And so it's our prayer this morning that you would awaken our hearts, that you would awaken our desires and our affections for you that you would continually be on our mind this week, Father, and that we would have a laser focus at loving God and loving others. We pray this all in the sweet name of Jesus Christ. Amen.